Our Father, what a joy it is to be together, to open your word. And Lord, may we learn from you as we study. May we hear your voice, and may the simplicity of this message grab our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so in our last lesson, we learned that there was a battle between good and evil that began in heaven, that was transferred to this earth, and then when it was transferred to this earth, Satan began to attack the church. And he attacked the church so successfully that the church was whittled down to a remnant. And Satan says, I'm not satisfied with this remnant. I must figure a way to destroy them. And so he has a counterfeit Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those counterfeits work together. And those counterfeits work together to bring the people of God to worship in a way that is inconsistent with the commandments of God and an authentic faith commitment to Jesus. Amen? Now, at, at that, with that problem, God sends his message. God sends a message, and that message we call the three angels' message. And the three angels' message is designed to help God's people remain remnant. And it is also designed to help the non-remnant become remnant. And we learn that the first angel's message is the announcement of the everlasting gospel. It calls us to proper reverence, fear of God. It calls us to give glory to God through a life of repentance. It announces the beginning of the judgment and calls us to worship the Creator in the context of the Sabbath. That's the first angel's message. Now, the second angel's message is found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And let's read that real quick. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this verse is kind of an interesting verse because John just throws out Babylon is fallen. John hasn't talked about who Babylon is. He hasn't talked about what Babylon means. And he literally just announces Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. Later in the book of Revelation, John spends time telling us who and what Babylon is. But let's just sum it up real quick. If you have your Bible, go to Revelation 18, and we're going to look at verses 2 to 4. He called with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the dwelling place of demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, verse 4, Come out of her, what? My people. Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So what is Babylon? Babylon is described as a place where many of God's people live and a place God wants them to leave. Right? Very simple. Babylon is a city where God's people live and God wants them to leave. And this has an Old Testament backdrop. It has an Old Testament backdrop, and we don't have time to read it today, but 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, Jeremiah chapter 25, describe this Old Testament background. Basically, and it's, it's so interesting when you get into it, God's people got involved with basically two major sins, idolatry and Sabbath-breaking. And it's interesting, it's, it's so interesting, because of their idolatry and their Sabbath-breaking, God allowed the Babylonians to come and take them captive to Babylon. It's so interesting, they've done a lot of archaeological research. Do you know that they have not found a single Israelite idol after the Babylonian exile? But before the Babylonian exile, they have found literally hundreds 
of, no joke, pornographic idols that were Israelite idols. Israel had totally degraded itself through really immoral idolatry. And not only the immoral idolatry, but you can read there in the book of Jeremiah in several places, but in the book of Jeremiah, read that they had, they had begun to tread on the Sabbath. They had begun to violate the Sabbath. And so God allows them to go to Babylonian captivity. Now, come with me to Isaiah 21, because this, this Isaiah 21 is actually where John borrows the concept of Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. Go to Isaiah 21. And, and I really, this is such a really interesting section of Scripture as well. Where does this Babylon is fallen is fallen come from? Isaiah 21, 6. Thus says the Lord to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. What is a watchman? A watchman is somebody who stands on the walls of the city, and his job is to look and watch for enemies. And when the enemy comes, he is to announce it, and he is to let the world know that there is a problem. So Babylon, here there's a watchman on the city, and then notice he's to announce what he sees. Verse 7, when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here comes riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he shall shatter to the ground. Now, what does he mean when he says Babylon is fallen, is fallen? Is he saying that Babylon is corrupt? Of course not. Babylon is not saying now Babylon is corrupt. Babylon has always been corrupt. Now, what you have is you have a guy on the walls of the city. He's looking off into the distance, and he sees the advancing armies coming to the city, and he is announcing Babylon's doom. Babylon is fallen. That is, the city is going to be destroyed by the advancing armies. And what Revelation 14 and Revelation 18 are announcing... Revelation 14 and 18 are announcing that the armies of heaven are advancing on Babylon. And Babylon is going to receive the plagues and Babylon is going to be destroyed by the advancing armies. Now, I want you to think about this a minute. If you knew that tomorrow Al-Qaeda was going to drop a nuke on Phoenix... What would you do? If, if you were smart, you'd be flying out on the same flight I'm flying on this afternoon. Amen? You would flee the city. If you knew this city was going to be destroyed by an Al-Qaeda nuke, you'd be getting out of here. And that's what Revelation is saying, basically, that the city Babylon, not the literal city, the metaphoric city Babylon, is going to be destroyed by the seven last plagues. And God's people happen to be living in this city, and if they are smart, they will hear God's, they will heed God's invitation to flee this city. Can you say amen to that? Now, it's interesting, when you go to the book of Isaiah... Go to Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah 48, and let's look in verse 17. Oh, what an interesting text. In Isaiah 48, God is writing to his church, the people of Israel, and he says in verse 17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am your God who teaches you to profit and leads you in the way that you should go. 
And then he says in verse 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand. Your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Now God is writing to his people and he's saying to his people, Oh, that you had listened to me. Oh, that you had followed in my commandments. Oh, that you had gone in my ways. Then things would be good for you. But you didn't. And because of that, you went to Babylon. You went to Babylon. But notice there in verse 20. Come out of Babylon... Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, he, the, uh, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made water flow from them from a rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. And then he says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Very interesting. God says, oh, I wish you had paid attention to my commandments. But because you didn't pay attention to my commandments, you went to Babylon. But now your time of captivity is done in Babylon. Come out of her and proclaim this with shouts of what? Joy. Shouts of joy. Isn't that wonderful? I, I mean, think about this. Imagine you're a Jew, all right? You're a Jew. You live, in ba- uh, you live in Jerusalem, and you've been bad. And the Babylonians come, and they kill your parents, and they take you captive. And now you're living in a city hundreds of miles away from where you are supposed to be living. Zion, the city of God. Jerusalem, the city of peace. And you are not there. You're not where you're supposed to be. And you are a foreigner in a foreign land. And your homeland is is lying in waste. And you're stuck there. You're stuck there. And all of a sudden, God comes and God says, You can go home. Now... What did some of the people say? You know, God, thanks for the invitation, but we're quite happy here, thank you. Our kids are going to Harvard, and, you know, I'm making six figures. Life is good here in Babylon. But what did those who were true-hearted toward God do? They said, we are so stoked. All right, that's maybe a little paraphrase. But they were thrilled. They were thrilled from, their, from the bottom of their hearts to be able to go home. Can you say amen? amen? God's people have been taken captive to Babylon in our modern day for the very same reason that ancient Israel was taken captive to Babylon. Because of their idolatry, their rebellion against the Sabbath, and they're stuck there in Babylonian captivity trapped in this metaphoric city of false religion because of the rebellion against the commandments of God. And God is giving his people an invitation out before it's too late and Babylon is destroyed. Can you say amen to that? So that's really what the announcement of Babylon is fallen. Now it's interesting because Babylon is more than a city. Babylon is also a woman. And it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, God has a city, New Jerusalem, and he has a pure woman. And Satan has a city, Babylon, and he has an impure woman. Go to Revelation 17. And let's just briefly talk about this. Revelation 17, verse... And we talked about this a little bit last, last uh, class period. If, if a woman... What, what is the difference between a woman and a wife? Marriage. A marriage. And what happens in a marriage that turns a woman into a wife? A vow. And we call... We could use a new word or an old word for vow, and that would be covenant. A woman becomes a wife on the basis of a covenant. A man becomes a husband on the basis of a covenant. 
And, when, in, in, and so God uses that same metaphor here for his church. He has entered into a new covenant relationship with the church where he gives us forgiveness and transformation. When the church is faithful to the new covenant, they are a pure woman. When the church is unfaithful to the new covenant, the, the church is an impure woman. So in Revelation 17, let's look there. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned in gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. Here we see that this woman, Babylon, the city Babylon, or that the city Babylon is also a woman, a church that is unfaithful to its covenant vows. It's interesting because when it describes the dress of this woman, it, it describes her dress as being purple, scarlet, gold, and expensive jewels. Now, this language is so fascinating because if you look in the book of uh, Exodus, in Exodus when it describes the dress of the earthly priest, Exodus 25, or 28, pardon me, Exodus 28, verse 5, it describes the dress of the earthly priest. They shall receive gold, blue, purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It describes it again in verse 15. It says, um, you shall make the breastplate of judgment. Um, You should make it in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. And then it describes it in verse 6. Make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine twine linen. And then it describes the precious stones. In in the Old Testament, the dress of the priest is consistently gold, blue, purple, scarlet, jewels. Gold, blue, purple, scarlet, jewels. The woman of Revelation 17 has all of the gold. She has all of the purple, the scarlet, and the jewels, but she is missing the blue. Now, the significant thing about the blue is found in Numbers chapter 15. If you have your Bible, I'd like to have you go there. Numbers 15, and we're going to look in verse 37. Numbers 15, And we're going to begin looking in verse 37. Numbers 15, 37. Now, let me give you some background here. In Numbers 15, you have a law about intentional and unintentional sins. You know there's a difference, right? Of course you do. We all know when we say, God, I'm going to do my own thing and I don't care. And we know what that feels like. And we also know what it feels like when, because of the brokenness of the sinful flesh, we do something that we know we shouldn't do. But there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between swearing when you smash your uh, thumb with a hammer and swearing because it's just the every other word that comes out of your mouth. Amen? Both are sins. We're not justifying anything, but... So he talks about the difference between intentional and unintentional sin. And then, immediately after that, there's this guy gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Now, what category do you think that falls into? Intentional or unintentional? Intentional. Intentional. And what happens to that guy? He gets killed. He gets stoned. So then immediately after that, God records through Moses this important text. Verse 37. 
The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue in the tassels of each corner. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember the commandments of the Lord to do them. Not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to, what? Whore after. You shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So look at this. Don't sin intentionally. Don't do what the guy who gathered sticks did. I'm giving you my, these cords of blue on your corners of your garments to remind you to do the law so that you do not prostitute yourself. Now, the woman of Revelation 17, she is wearing everything she should be wearing, but what did she forget? She forgot the blue, which is to remind her of her covenant relationship with God. It's to remind her of the law of God. And in forgetting the blue, forgetting the law, the woman prostituted herself. And so the church... The church has gone through the same story. The story of the church is the story of ancient Israel, of an exile to Babylonian captivity. Israel, because of their unfaithfulness to God and His covenant, was exiled to Babylonian captivity, and the church has been exiled to Babylonian captivity just the same. And just like in the Old Testament, the announcement came, Babylon is doomed, flee the city... And just like in the Old Testament it announced, come out of her, my people, go out with shouts of joy, you are free, you don't have to be there any longer. So God does the same thing in our day and age. The church who has been exiled to Babylon is doomed. Come out of Babylon and be free. Can you say amen? amen. What? You know, sometimes, I don't know how you feel about this, but to me, it's so fun just to see the simple, big picture idea of Revelation. Amen? It's great. I love counting horns as much as the next guy. I do. And I love figuring out heads as much as the next guy. I do. But sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees, do we? And we get so wrapped up in that we don't get the big picture. The church is going to do exactly what ancient Israel did. They're going to be taken captive because of it, and God is going to invite them to leave Babylonian captivity. Some will choose to stay in Babylon and be destroyed. Others will go home. They'll go home with shouts of joy, like an exile. Now... That's the first angel's me- the second angel's message. Did, did you track with that pretty well? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Babylon is a place where God's people have been taken captive and Babylon is going to be overthrown. And if you know what's good for you, you'll go home. You'll go home. So let's look at the third angel's message and um, talk a little bit about the third angel's message, Revelation 14, beginning in verse 9. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. You know, I'm going to make a little side note here. How many of you have ever read things about God getting angry and you've said to yourself, Ooh, I I thought God was love and it freaks me out that God gets angry. Anybody else kind of ever been freaked out by God getting angry? I used to occasionally feel that way as well. And then it hit me one day. Could you imagine a God who was not outraged by the problems of this world? I mean, really, think about it. Aren't you totally disturbed and angry and outraged when you read the news sometimes? 
Don't you read the news and you say to yourself, what in the world is going on? This makes me crazy. Why do people treat their kids like this? You know, I used to sometimes read about God getting angry and I was just like, whoa, you know, God seems a little hot-headed. Well, no, he's just like us, only he is more sensitive to the pain and suffering that sin causes. Right? I mean, there are some sins that we like and some suffering that we're willing to sort of accommodate for ourselves. But God is so holy, he doesn't do that, does he? So every sin, even the sins that we tend to enjoy, is outrageous to God. And so it hurts him and it upsets him. Just like when we see about some guy that hurts and kills children. We, we, we see that and we're outraged. Well, God is sensitive to all sin, and it, 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 it's upsetting to him. Of course, it's his children that have committed those hor- heinous crimes, and so he loves as well. Amen? In this third angel's message, we see the most fearful warning. If you receive the mark of the beast, you will, you will fall under the judgment of God. Well, what is the mark of the beast? It's a great question. I remember when I was uh, 18 years old, I was living in Lander, Wyoming, And I was working in a grocery store, and this lady comes in, and she has all her food in the buggy, and she has a piece of paper with every single thing she's buying, and the price of every single thing she's buying. And she says, I have a relationship with the guy that owns this place, and I don't let any of my food get scanned, because scanning your food is the mark of the beast. So punch it in by price, and I'll pay you. But we don't scan any of it because I don't want the mark of the beast. Because if you look at this barcodes, the first, at the beginning of it, it has two lines. In the middle of it, it has two lines. And at the end of it, it has two lines. And guess what those two lines symbolize? Six. 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 Each one of those two lines is a six. So if you scan your groceries, you're getting the mark of the beast. And I, when I heard that, I thought to myself, this lady needs to be institutionalized. <laughs> I wasn't a believer. I knew nothing about Jesus, but I thought to myself, if God cares about barcodes, I'm not interested. Now, the good news today is is that the issues at the end of time are the same basic spiritual issues that have always mattered. That is, do you have an authentic faith commitment to God? Are you committed to worshiping God in harmony with His commandments? Those are the cornerstone issues at the end of time. Now, in order to understand the mark of the beast, we need to understand a little bit... Well, let's look what the beast promises. The beast promises, there in Revelation 13, verse 16... Well, let's read verse 15. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, notice what it promises. It promises that if you receive the mark of the beast, you will not be killed by the beast and that you will be able to buy and sell. Do you realize this? I don't know if you've ever realized this, but the mark of the beast issue is ultimately an issue of whether or not you trust more in Jesus or in your ability to shop. Do we trust more in Jesus and His ability to provide for us, or do we trust more in our ability to shop? Can you believe that? That's the issue at the end of time. Whether we will have more faith in Jesus or more faith in our ability to shop. So if you receive the mark, you're promised you will be able to shop. And you will not suffer the wrath of the beast. On the other hand, in Revelation 7, God gives the seal of God. And the seal of God is his promise to protect you from his own wrath and his promise to provide for you. Can you say amen? Amen. So really, at the end of time, it's a matter of whether we trust in God to protect us from the beast or we trust in the beast to protect us from the beast. 
I think I'll take God on that one any day of the week. Can you say amen? Doesn't Jesus says, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. And I think it's important for us to be working on breaking the habits of materialism now because it will become harder when our life depends on it. Now, go to Revelation 7, and let's, let's look a little bit about the seal of God. And let's just read those first few verses there, Revelation chapter 7, 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth or the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so you have the angels keeping back the the strife of the last days. Why? Because there are people that need to receive the seal of God. The mark of the beast marks those that follow the beast. The seal marks those that follow God. And the seal protects you from God's wrath and it's God's protection of you from the beast. The beast says, my mark, it protects you from my wrath. And it provides you the opportunity to keep shopping. So again, we've just laid out the issue, okay? Second angel's message... The church has followed Israel. They've made the same kind of mistakes and they've been exiled to Babylon, but God is inviting them out. Second angel's message, the warning of the mark of the beast. The beast marks you as his and says, I'll protect you if you are mine. You can keep shopping and I won't kill you. God marks you as his if you receive the seal and God says, I'll take care of you and I will protect you in these times of difficulty. So what is the mark of the beast and what is the seal of God? Well, even more than that, we need to ask the question, how? Who is it that receives the seal of God? Who is it? that receives the mark of the beast. You see the, the difference in the question? It's different. It's one thing to ask, what is the mark? We'll talk about that. What is the seal? That's one question. The other question is, How do I receive the mark? How do I receive the seal? You see the difference? In other words, we're saying, what is the seal and what are the qualities that you must have in order to have the seal? Okay, and we read one already in Revelation 7 there. Who is it that ultimately gets sealed? Did you remember? The servants of our God. Can you say amen? That is, those that are devoted to God, devoted to serving God. Look at Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Then I looked on Mount Zion, stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had the Father's name in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these that have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Notice the characteristics of those who have the, the Father's name, those the 144,000 that are sealed. What are the characteristics? Well, look at that. Really simply put, it says, um, number one, they have the Father's name in their forehead. They, have, they, have, they, they are devoted to the character of God. It says they've not defiled themselves with women. That is, they have not been unfaithful to their covenant relationship with Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And they tell the truth. No lie was found in their mouth. See, so often as Adventists, we say, oh yeah, yeah, the seal is the Sabbath, and so, you know, we keep the Sabbath, so we're in. And yet, 
We're not asking, who is it that God gives the seal to? In order to be authentically sealed at the end of time, you have to be fully devoted to following the Lamb. You have to be a servant of God. You have to be willing to tell the truth. You can't get yourself mixed up with false religion. You can't prostitute your covenant relationship with God. You have to have the Father's name in your forehead. You see that? That's important for us to look at those characteristics. Revelation 14, 12. Here's the endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Again, it's, it's the character qualities. Fully devoted followers of Jesus. They keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's not, like, it's not just like God you know, rubber stamps the Sabbath and that's the, the end of the story. No, we have to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That's who receives the seal of God. Those who receive the mark of the beast and those who receive the seal of God are very simply put. Those who receive the, the, the seal of God are those who are fully devoted to Christ, who will not give up their faith or turn from the path of unswerving obedience to the commandments of God. That's who receives the seal of God. Fully devoted followers of Christ who will not turn from the path of obedience. Those who receive the mark of the beast are those who are not fully devoted followers of Jesus, who do not endure in times of difficulty, who give up their faith and turn from the path of unswerving obedience to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's very simple. You want the mark? Give up your faith. Turn from the commandments. You want the seal? Keep the faith. And keep living your life in obedience to the commandments of God. Amen? Now, in our last session, we looked specifically at the issue of worship in Revelation 13. We read it there in Revelation 13.8, or 13.4. They worshipped the dragon. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Verse 12, it says, um, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Verse 15, It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast. And then we just read it a couple of times there in chapter 14, verse 9 and 11. If anyone worships the beast, verse 9 and verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast. So the issue at the end of time is worship... But then there's that other element of the commandments, Revelation 13, 4. They worship the dragon in violation of the first commandment. Verse 14, they, they worship the image of the beast in violation of the second commandment. In Revelation 13, 6, it says that they utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name in violation of the third commandment. And in Revelation 14, 7, God calls us to worship Him as Creator in faithfulness to the Sabbath commandments. So let's look at, let's, let's pull all this together, because I've done two topics in one, and so I have to keep pulling it together, or otherwise we're going to get distracted by too many things coming at us. What is the issue at the end of time? It's worship and obedience to the commandments of God and authentic faith in Jesus. The Antichrist is trying to counterfeit all of those things. He's trying to counterfeit all of those things. Now, Daniel 7, verse 25 adds... Okay, before I go there. So, so the issue is worship and obedience to the commandments. Those who are faithful to Jesus, faithful to His commandments, receive the seal. Those who are not, receive the mark. And people receive the mark because they'll be protected from the beast and they'll continue to be able to shop. Those who receive the seal, receive the seal because they're fully devoted to Jesus and His commandments, and they are protected by the seal of God from the judgments of God, and even protected from the beast. Now, in Daniel 7, verse 25, the Bible sharpens the focus on what the issue will be at the end of time, because Daniel 7, 25 specifically mentions that the beast will change God's law. And when we look at God's law to see how it's been changed, it has been changed in one significant way. God's law says to remember the Sabbath day, and the beast has changed it, 
and said, no, don't worry. He either says one of two things. Don't worry about the Sabbath at all. You don't have to keep any day holy. Or he says, well, if you do have to worry about it, what day should you keep holy? Sunday. Yes, ma'am. That is correct. You can't change God's law, but you can certainly change God's law as far as everyone perceives it. So, in Daniel 7, you have this prediction that a change, an attempted change, would take place in God's law, and we have seen that play out historically. Now, with that said, I want to I take a look at the Ten Commandments, and there's something interesting in the Ten Commandments, and th- this, I think, will probably be new and interesting in a very faith-affirming kind of way. But I want to sum, sum it up one more time so we feel like we're cohesive here. The issue at the end of time is the issue of worship and obedience to the commandments of God fully devoted faith in Jesus Christ. Those people that worship and obey, fully devoted followers of Jesus, those people will receive the seal of God. Those who do not will receive the mark of the beast. So, let's look at the Ten Commandments and ask ourselves, could the seal of God be in the Ten Commandments? Now, how many of you have ever seen the evangelist put up on the screen a presidential seal and it says his title, his territory, and all of that, and you've said to yourself, I see that, but what does a presidential seal from 1989 or 2009 have anything to do with what John was talking about in a prophetic book 2,000 years ago? How many of you have ever asked yourself that question? Am I, there's two skeptical people in the auditorium and I happen to be one of them and the meek woman who's barely raising her hand for so nobody can know that she's also skeptical like the preacher no I'm just pick I'm not trying to pick on you whenever I saw that presentation in the past I would always see that and I would say to myself are you kidding me I mean are you really kidding me it's it, what's the word there's a technical word for it anachronistic You know, that's reading, it's like um, reading a modern invention, writing a novel. Say you're writing a book about something in the 1800s, and um, you you had the main cowboy using an M16. That's, That's called anachronistic. It's putting something from the present in a historical context that didn't exist in the past. Does that make sense? So whenever I'd see that, that presidential seal up there explaining about this, the title and the territory, etc., I would always think to myself, okay, that's, yada, yada, yeah, okay, maybe that's true, but it seems kind of anachronistic. There were no presidential seals 2,000 years ago because America wasn't formed back then. Are you following the, 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 the dilemma here, yes or no? Okay, now I'm not trying to make you skeptical, um, but that's what would always go through my brain. That would enter my mind. And I was, I was always saying, are you really expecting me to believe that's the seal? I mean, come on. Are you serious? Now, um, I never doubt. I mean, I, I, I believed it. You understand? I believed it, but I was always a little uncomfortable with it. So, it's interesting what we learn as we study and I'd like to read you a quote, and, and maybe I'll, I'll give you a little background. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, they're not a new kind of thing. When God gave them, they were not a new kind of way of entering into a relationship. In fact, the Ten Commandments are based on a very traditional covenant relationship called a Suez Reign Covenant. Okay, let's say that together, just for fun. Suez Reign Covenant. Let's one more time. Suez Reign Covenant. And you would have a person of prominence who represented God enter into a covenant with a person or a group of people. This happened in ancient Near Eastern cultures all the time. So, so the Suez Reign would come to the vassal and he would say something like, I have been so good to you. 
When you were starving, I gave you a bunch of food, and because I have been so good to you, these are the expectations I now have of you. Okay? Now, does that sound a little bit like the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Here are my expectations. It's called the Suez Rain Covenant, and they have literally found dozens of these in ancient Near Eastern culture. They're digging, they find these Suez Rain Covenants. Now, here's where things get really interesting. How many of you have ever entered into a covenant agreement? Uh, you got married, you got a loan, something, and you got your copy and the other person got their copy. You got your carbon copy of your documents. We've all had that experience. Well, I don't know about this, but how many tables of stone were there? Two. And they were written on both the front and the back. Interesting. In traditional Suez Rain covenants, the whole covenant was written on the front and the back of the document. And so let's say um, myself and Denise were entering into this covenant, and I said, uh, well, let's make, we'll make her the one in charge. She says, you know, when you were struggling... I did this kind thing for you, and now these are my expectations of you. And I say, oh, yes, you've been so kind to me. Thank you for treating me so well in my time of need. And then she would give to me a copy of my covenant relationship, and she would keep for herself a copy of that covenant relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, when the, the Suez reign would enter into covenant... In order to make the document official, guess what they would do to the document? They would seal it. Isn't that interesting? Just like we seal documents today, you have them notarized, so even back in the days of Moses, they would seal documents. 4,000 years ago, they would seal documents just like we do today. And those seals, now check this out, would have the face... So say I was the Suez Reign, and I was going to seal this document. This would have my name, my title, my territory, and my mug, my picture, my image. So this has really led scholars to wrestle a lot with the Ten Commandments, because this is a Suez Reign covenant, so this Ten Commandments should have the seal of God on it. However, the seals in Suez Rain Covenants traditionally had the image of that God on there. But one of the Ten Commandments the f- forbids what? Images. And so this has led scholars sort of scratching their heads saying, where is the seal of God in the Ten Commandments? I'm talking about non-Adventist scholars here. And then a a good Presbyterian scholar discovered the answer. And let me read it to you. You want me to read it to you? You're going to freak out. Well, I I don't know. I'm used to preaching to uh, the teenagers, so so I can say freak out. Is that okay here? You're going to freak out because you're going to say to yourself, this is a non-Adventist teaching Adventist doctrine. Okay. Now, I'm going to read it. You know, it's, it's from a scholarly journal, so they have to speak in a foreign language even though it's supposedly English. So follow with me, okay? There is, moreover, the comparative evidence of extra-biblical treaties. Covenants, such as Exodus 20, has been shown to be and are found written in their entirety on one table and indeed like the Sinaitic tables on both its sides. As a further detail in the parallelism of external appearance, it is tempting to see in the Sabbath sign presented in the midst of the ten words the equivalent of the Suez-Rain dynastic seal found in the midst of the obverse international treaty documents. Now, let me put that into English. He says, it is the Sabbath sign functions as the seal of the Ten Commandments. That's what he just said. Now, listen to what he says next, and you're going to love this. This is a non-Adventist. To me, this is earth-shaking. Isn't this fantastic? 
It's not just the Adventist evangelist up on the screen trying to make an Adventist point to rope people into the Adventist church. No, this is a non-Adventist. He, he keeps Sunday. He's a Presbyterian. And he looks at the Bible and he says, where is the seal of God in the Sabbath command? This is an ancient treaty between two parties and ancient treaties had seals and that means there should be a seal in the Ten Commandments like in all the other treaty documents. Where is the seal? It's in the Sabbath command. I'll give it to you. It's, um, it's written by um, it's page 139 and the guy's name is Meredith Klein and it's from Westminster Theological Journal. If you just Google it, it'll come up somewhere. Now listen to what he says next. Since in the case of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, the Suez reign is Yahweh, there will be no representation of him on the seal. But the Sabbath is declared his sign of the covenant. By means of the Sabbath, now listen to this, God's image bearer, who's that? That's us. Remember, in the beginning, God made us in the image of God. We bear God's image. By means of the Sabbath, God's image bearer, as a pledge of covenant consecration, images the pattern of the divine act of creation, which proclaims God's absolute sovereignty over man. God has stamped on world history the sign of the Sabbath as his seal of ownership and authority. I mean, isn't that straight out of an Adventist evangelistic preaching? I mean, I don't know how many times before I came upon this quote, I had heard Pastor Asterix say that the Sabbath is God's sign of ownership and authority. I mean, David, David says that all the time. And then I happen upon this quote. Non-Adventist saying the Sabbath is the seal of God. It's the sign of His ownership and authority. How? Well, it functions as the seal of God because the seal on covenants is supposed to be the image of that God. Well, who is the image of God? We are. And as we live as God intended us to live in observance of the Sabbath, we, we are proclaiming His sovereignty over our lives. God has stamped on world history the Sabbath is the seal of ownership and authority. This, that is precisely what the pictures on dynastic seals symbolize and their captions claim on behalf of the treaty gods and their representatives, the Suez reign. So the seal on the normal covenant laws proclaims the ownership and the authority of the Suez reign and their God. And our obedience to the Sabbath commandment proclaims God's sovereignty in our lives. My friends... I am so thrilled today, I am so thrilled today that the Sabbath, the Sabbath functions as the seal of God. And that's not something Adventists cooked up in a back room somewhere to convince people to join their church. It is based on solid biblical thinking. It is based on solid biblical thinking. And Adventist got it right 170 years ago in seeing the Sabbath as the dividing issue at the end of time. Can you say amen? amen. I tell you, when I saw this, I tell you, I had to repent. I had to repent of my skepticism. Say, okay, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, they might not have explained it as well as, as I think I can. I'm just kidding, you understand. But I had to repent. I had to say, God, I, I, I'm so proud sometimes. How, how can I be such a skeptic? And yet, I suppose in the end it's been good because it drives you to keep digging and keep studying. But I had to accept. I had to accept the great and grand truth 
that God has a law, and at the heart of that law is his seal, the Sabbath command. As we, the bearers of the image of God, remember the Sabbath day, we proclaim his sovereignty. And as we proclaim his sovereignty, we are experiencing the awesome truth of the sealing power of God. You see, the Sabbath isn't just about, you know, picking a day and resting. It's about God's sovereignty on this earth. You know, the Presbyterians and the Reformed Christians, they all love to talk about the sovereignty of God. And when they talk about the sovereignty of God, they say, oh, God picked you to go to heaven and God picked you to go to hell. And God is sovereign. That's the way it works. No, that's not what God's sovereignty is about. God's sovereignty is Jesus is Lord. And by imaging God, by following our Father in remembering the Sabbath, we are proclaiming God is sovereign. He determines what I do with my time. God is sovereign. The second angel's message, what does it say? It says God's people in the new covenant are just like God's people in the old covenant. They will be rebellious. They will be disobedient. They will be taken to Babylonian captivity. And when they're in Babylonian captivity, God will reach out to them and invite them to come out. God will invite them to come out with shouts of joy so that they do not suffer the condemnation that Babylon will suffer. Amen? Then there comes the warning, the additional warning of the third angel's message. And it says, do not receive the mark of the beast. Do not receive the mark of the beast. I know the beast says, if you, if you don't receive my mark, you will be slain. If you don't receive my mark, you'll no longer be able to shop. And God says, but you know what? If you receive the mark of the beast, you'll receive my wrath. Instead, receive the seal of God. It is given to those that are devoted to Jesus, devoted to the commandments of God. Receive my seal. Well, why does God give the seal to those that are devoted to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Why does he give the seal? Because the seal is right there in the Sabbath command. You cannot get it if you're a rebel against God's law, because in the Sabbath command, we are proclaiming the sovereignty of God. My friends, I don't know about you today, but I am just thrilled. I am so thrilled with the Adventist message because we're not like the Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't cook things up to get people to join our church. We seek to know the truth from Scripture. And as we study and we seek to know the truth from Scripture, God reveals the truth, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. The first angel's message calls us to believe the gospel, to fear God, to give Him glory through a life of repentance, to be motivated to do that because the judgment is here, and worship Him as Creator. The second angel's message warns us to come out of Babylon. That is, we have made a detour in the history of the Christian church, and the Christian church has been in exile, and God is calling us out of exile. And then He warns us, of the dangers, the dangers of not coming out of exile, the dangers of staying put in sloppy Christianity, of not heeding the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We'll receive the mark, and then we'll receive God's judgment. So he invites us to receive the seal of God. That's the Sabbath command at the heart of God's law given to those who are fully devoted to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want, that's what I want to be devoted to. Amen. Amen? That's what I want to captivate my heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that in this time of intense, intense deception, in this time where shopping consumes so much of our attention. 
you are calling us to be fully devoted to you in your commandments. Lord, if we have made a detour in our experience, may we leave exile, come out. Lord, may we be fully devoted to you. And ultimately, God, may we receive your seal by imaging your act of working six and resting on the seventh. May through this act we proclaim your sovereignty in every aspect of our life. Lord, we confess Jesus is Lord. And we thank you in his name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.